Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Michael Fitzpatrick. My essay this week is entitled Treasures in Her Heart, and it's based upon the lectionary readings for December 26, 2001, the first Sunday of Christmas. As Mary, the Theotokos, the mother of God, treasures in her heart her front row seat to the maturation of Jesus, we bear witness to more than the stereotypical pride of a mother in the growth of her son. This phrase comes in the wake of the three previous verses, in which Mary has searched for her missing son in great anxiety, and has been left utterly befuddled by his subsequent response. The treasures in Mary's heart are those of a mother who has endured much, and who loves much. My own inspiration for reading the lectionary's juxtaposition of Hannah's and Mary's commitments to their anointed sons is my mother. Pride in a child's accomplishments can easily be the very source of a mother's anxiety. In a cold January in the year 2003, I called my mother from an army processing station in Portland, Oregon and informed her that I had enlisted to be a chaplain's assistant. My mother, who had technically signed the paperwork permitting her 17-year-old son to do this, could not have anticipated that my decision would lead to some of the most stressful moments in her life. Barely two months later, the United States invaded Iraq. With my induction date set for August 13th of the same year, I fervently assured my parents that by the time I finished basic training and my occupational school, the fuss in the Middle East would be over. As the saying goes, famous last words. I arrived from occupational school to my first duty station in Fort Hood, Texas in mid-January 2004 and learned that we were deploying shortly after the 1st of March. We moved so quickly my mom didn't even have time to fly down and see me off before my unit departed for the desert. Mary had to search for her son for only three days, yet imagine the severity of her fear and stress as she questioned her own ability as a mother to let something like this happen to her boy. Imagine the self-doubt the self-loathing, all mixed with a profound maternal instinct to never give up striving to find and protect her child, no matter the cost to herself. Did she hardly eat in those three days? Did she hardly sleep? My mother endured a similar turmoil for 12 months, helpless as she watched the evening news day after day, reporting the violence in Iraq as she prayed for her son's safety. She couldn't even search for me, an action by which Mary could at least feel like she was doing something about the situation. When I called my mom with my 500-minute AT&T calling card from Iraq, a value which lasted about 45 minutes of actual call time because of long-distance charges, and tried to explain to her why we were there and why I had felt the need to join, I doubt she really understood any more than Mary understood Jesus' response. Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? Sometimes children have callings, whether divine in Jesus' case or human in mine, that a parent cannot simply cannot make sense of.
This is why I'm so grateful that Mary and Hannah are juxtaposed together in our lectionary reading. Because without Mary's story, Hannah's astonishing virtue with respect to her son can seem almost superhuman, otherworldly. For so long she cried out to God for a son, and when her prayers finally answered, and justice for her womb finally given, she barely has time to celebrate his miraculous birth and get Samuel weaned before she dedicates him to the temple of God. After such a sacrifice of gratitude, our text today says that she would make clothes for him as a gift when she'd see him once a year during the annual family pilgrimage to the temple. We're told nothing of Hannah's inner thought life in this passage, her emotional response to losing her son to temple service at such a young age. But when I think about her deep lamentations before Samuel's birth, and reflect on Mary searching anxiously for her missing son, I suspect that Hannah treasures in her heart feelings of both tremendous pride for the son of hers who grows in favor with Creator God, and anguish longing to have mothered him for just a bit more time, a yearning that she permits herself to express once a year in handmade robes to clothe his body. Again, it is my own mother's journey that helps me here, for I know from her letters and phone calls how proud she was of her son serving his country, wearing the uniform, growing in favor with his fellow soldiers and leaders. Yet none of this pride removed the heartache of my absence, the powerlessness in knowing that at any moment my life could be claimed by an act of senseless violence. It wasn't just those twelve months she endured, it was the next several years as I returned, as she feared, for a second deployment, this time lasting fifteen months. All of this my mother treasured in her heart. In the end, my mom's bravery and endurance came only by trusting in her Lord and Savior. She finally had to accept that my life is in the hands of the one who creates and sustains and saves all things. She trusted my fate to my God and her God. Isn't that ultimately what Hannah and Mary do as well? They don't really profess to understand all that God is doing in the lives of their children, but they accept that God is at work, that Samuel is a miracle baby, that Jesus really was about his father's business in his father's house. Courage, patience, persistence, and long-suffering these are the virtues of mothers who treasure all the anxiety, all the fear, all the thanksgiving, all the pride they feel for their children in their hearts. It's the first Sunday in Christmas tide, those twelve days in which we rest from our labors as the church and dedicate ourselves to feasting and giving, celebrating the child who was born and who grows in divine and human favor for the salvation of the world. As we celebrate the season of Christmas, as we treasure these moments in our hearts, may we be open to treasuring not just the moments of kindness and celebration, but also the brokenness, the absences, the unkind words, the rejection, and the loneliness that we've experienced, and that perhaps some of us endure even now. Christmas joy is never to the exclusion of such things. Rather, it abides in the conviction of Hannah and Mary that no matter how great our anxieties, no matter how much a sword will pierce our own souls, 
the peace of Christ can still rule in our hearts. Such peace is not the denial of our anxiousness, but our baptism by fire into a life that can treasure in our hearts the gifts of God, even when we feel helpless in the face of our turbulent and uncertain world. For books this week, Dan reviews The Smallest Lights in the Universe, a memoir by Sarah Seeger. For a little over eight years, 1995 to 2004, I, Dan, was a campus minister at Stanford University as a staff member with an organization called InterVarsity. In particular, I worked with the faculty at Stanford. We had three groups that met on a weekly basis, one in the faculty club, one at the hospital, and then one at the linear accelerator. That experience led me to think long and hard about a complicated question. What does a work-life balance look like for people who are in careers that place heavy demands on nearly every aspect of their lives? Can you be successful both at home and at work? What does that look like? Or what does that even mean? This question led to some dark humor when one professor joked that behind every great man is a trail of human wreckage. These questions are the subject of Sarah Seeger's memoir. Seeger is a professor of astrophysics and planetary science at MIT. In 2013, she was awarded a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant. She's a leader at the forefront of the search for the first Earth-like exoplanets and signs of life on them. Time magazine named her one of the 25 most influential people in space research. So her career puts huge demands on her life. Making things even more complicated, she became a widow and single mother of two children at the age of 40, which forced her to ask some very hard questions about her work-life equation. Seeger had never been content to ignore the even most impo more important demands of her family and marriage. Why sacrifice what is more important merely to get a couple lines written about you in the history of astrophysics, she asked. And yet, she's passionately in love with her work, too. This memoir is an honest, compassionate, at times very funny, and articulate account of how she connected the dots between her love of the starry heavens above and the everyday realities of life at home on Earth. For films this week, Dan reviews Pray Away from 2001. I almost didn't watch this film because I thought it would be an angry cheap shot at an easy target. I was badly wrong. Rather, Pray Away is a deeply compassionate documentary about conversion and reparative therapy, the attempts to change a person's sexual orientation or gender identity by a religious leader, a licensed counselor, or through peer support groups. The genius of the film is that it lets the original leaders of conversion therapy, who are now survivors of the ex-gay movement, tell their own stories. In particular, the film focuses on the oldest and largest of such groups, Exodus International, which was founded in 1976 and that closed in 2013 after its leaders acknowledged how completely wrong they had been in their efforts to convert gays the crushing realization about the horrible damage they had done to the people they thought they were helping, and how they had, quote, lied about their own continued same-sex attractions, end quote, while, of course, claiming to be healed.
I especially appreciated the story of Julie Rogers, a former proponent of reparative therapy who was hired by Wheaton College to support sexual minorities on campus, and who has published a new book called Outlove, a queer Christian survival story. Even though there were mass defections from the movement after Exodus closed, and all major medical and mental health associations have denounced conversion therapy, the movement is by no means dead. The film begins and ends with Jeffrey McCall of Freedom March, who is a former transgender activist and is now a leader in the next generation of similar ministries that continue to advocate for conversion therapy. Now watch this film on Netflix. And lastly, for poetry on this first Sunday of Christmas, The Truce of Christmas by G.K. Chesterton. Passionate peace is in the sky, and in the snow in silver sealed. The beasts are perfect in the field, and men seem men so suddenly. But take ten swords, and ten times ten, and blow the bugle on praising men. For we are for all men under the sun, and they are against us every one. And misers haggle and madmen clutch, and there is peril and praising much. And we have the terrible tongues uncurled that praise the world to the sons of the world. The idle, humble hill on, and wood are bowed upon the sacred birth. And for one little hour the earth is lazy with the love of good. But ready are you, and ready am I, if the battle blow and the guns go by. For we are for all men under the sun, and they are against us every one. And the men that hate herd all together, to pride and gold, and the great white feather. And the thing is graven in star and stone, the men who love are all alone. Hunger is hard, and time is tough. But bless the beggars and kiss the kings, for hope has broken the heart of things. And nothing was ever praised enough, but bold the shield for a sudden swing, and point the sword when you praise a thing. For we are for all men under the sun, and they are against us every one. And mime and merchant, thane and thrall, hate us because we love them all. Only till Christmas tide go by, Passionate peace is in the sky. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for December 26, 2021. I'm Michael Fitzpatrick. Merry Christmas.